Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Our Bible reading is taken from Jeremiah 6, verse 15 to 17. Jeremiah is before Ezekiel, if you are looking for it. Jeremiah 6, 15 to 17. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when I punish them says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. I appointed watchmen over you and said, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But you said, we will not listen. This is the word of the Lord. Um, thank you, Femi, and good morning, church, and a happy new year. Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. A happy new year. Happy I know new you've year. said it, it's been long, you know, new, Year's Eve, new Year was like Tuesday, you've said it over and over again, but it's the first time we're seeing, so a happy new year to all of you. All right, and um, if, you're, if you're here for the first time, we especially welcome you um, for our what's turning out to be you know, the first services for the year, for our year is usually a transition series, right? So we've been dealing with, uh, from last week, the issue of crossover. We talked about having uh, rhythms about our lives, uh, how rhythms are natural for our lives. And, and this period, we try to, um, uh, in our transitions, we try to, it's our effort as a church to collectively and individually observe the rhythms of change and to exercise our natural inclinations for two things, reflection and, we said, resolution. The mouth is dry. <laughs> and when we think about reflection, we simply mean we're exercising our mind as to what has happened in our past, right? And when we're talking about resolution, we're exercising our minds as to the possible outcomes uh, in the future. We want to see what our lives would look like in the future. And, uh, and when we then talk about having a perspective, generally a perspective means a viewpoint on a particular issue, a point of view from a position that enables you to both evaluate yourself and then respond appropriately uh, to that situation or to that issue. And last week, um, if you were here, there was a monkey video um, that was, you know, I, I just, I, I, I felt hard. You know, we are all busy arguing over the number of passes, and, and the man, the preacher knew he was essentially playing monkey business with you. He had something else in mind. But in that video, we, uh, the video illustrates how we can miss the point, many things in our environment, when we have an overly narrow perspective. By overly focusing, we limit our observations to the few data points that we're already seeking, and we limit our understanding of, a few, of, of the real picture of what's going on. And so we're also admonished to broaden our horizon, to include God 
the God who has the answers to the big issues of life, to include him in our lives and to let him inform the perspectives we have. And particularly, we spoke about how we need to focus a bit more on the power of God and on the mind of God so that we're not living as functional atheists. We then examine, lastly, how it means, what it means to live with an eternal perspective, to live intentionally, to strive for, to achieve things that matters to God, to live as people who have been freed from the power of death, to, achieve, to, to, to tackle those things that under normal circumstances you would not tackle. And so today we'll examine how to acquire that perspective, a perspective that is shaped by ancient realities, that is shaped by God himself. So it's kind of like that second point of broad, having a broad perspective, but we're going to examine, examine a bit more how to achieve that broad perspective. Now, we'll look at it in three parts. I'll, be talk, I'll talk about an ignorant viewpoint or perspective, a warped viewpoint, but then I'll talk, about, I'll talk about a reshaped viewpoint. And let us pray. Our God and our Father, we pray that you would grant us insight into your word, that you make my speech clear, that we pray that every heart here will be open and every ear would listen. And that in the, end, in the end, Lord, our hearts and our perspectives will be shaped by your gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. All right. So, Femi's, uh, this, the passage that Femi read for us, um, somebody is upset. Somebody, and that somebody is God. Somebody is upset at um, the condition of things in the nation of Israel. He says that the people are dressing, they're treating the wounds of my people, Israel, as if it were not serious. Their perspective on, on what is ailing Israel, what is ailing the people, you know, they're treating as if it's, it's not serious, right? And that's happening on the context of there's a siege, there's a problem in the land. There is war about to come on, 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 in, in, in the nation of Israel. And, and Israel is presented essentially as a sick man who needs healing, who needs a cure. But the people who are supposed to talk to Israel, who are supposed to help her out, are treating as if it's really not a big deal what they're going through. So someone is not showing God's people the, stru- tr- the true state of their heart, the true state of their wounds. They are going through national malaise, and in fact, it seems like there's, a, there's an issue of destruction maybe on the, on the horizon. Destruction is on the horizon. And when, it, when it, 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 a set of people know that something bad is about to happen, there's a way they ought to conduct themselves. There's a way in which they ought to respond if they, in fact, know that something terrible is coming down the horizon. But these people are not. These people are not. They're acting as if everything is fine, and people talking to them are talking to them as if it's really not a big deal. Now, when, uh, when, when uh, Jeremiah talks about the ancient paths, you can, I don't know what it evokes in your mind, what it evokes in your mind. Some may look at, I saw the, the you know, yeah, so this is a nice perspective. But for, for me, it evokes... Um, something about something called the Appalachian Trail. Now, in the north, northeastern parts of the U.S., there's a 2,200-kilometer hiking trail that goes all the way from Georgia in the south up into Maine in the north, right? How many people go hiking here? How many people go hiking? I, I'm, I'm actually shocked I saw any hand. I'm actually, it was, it was all those set-up questions. So where do you, where do you, where do you go hiking? Well done. Great answer. Yes. Shame on you, all you Lagosians, right? Where do you go hiking? Don't tell me there. In Joss. Okay, right? Those are, those are really nice places to go see nature, you know, and, and, and you know, sort of fill the space. Eloran, yes, thank you. But the Appalachian Trail is a... Eloran, why are you laughing? We said no jokes about Eloran this year. 
right? This Appalachian Trail is about 2,000 2, miles, right? The terrain looks a bit like this. Well, well, this is kind of what you would see on a, on a map. Oh, go, go back to the previous one on the map. Go to the previous one. You just see all the brown stuff is just hills and mountains all the way. And then go to the next one. And then this is kind of what it looks like when you're on the ground. Now, there's no one, no human being can traverse this and actually survive. So there's a trail. In that whole expanse, there's a trail that everybody kind of follows. There are about 2 million visitors to this place every year. 2 million visitors. And you have to, but you have to follow the trail. You can't go left. You can't go too much to the right. Not only that, that trail is marked by white blazers. They paint stuff, right? Whether it's on rocks, on trees, every, every so number of miles, you will see a marker that tells you that you're on the right way, that you can, you're going to you know, make it down. Down there. Now, I don't know how long it typically takes to, uh, to traverse this. So it may be a month, uh, it may be a couple of weeks for some people, but it's a, it's a really, really far out kind of idea. People who love the wilderness, who want to get one with nature, they pack. In fact, what I heard was that you pack gear, gear and you pack food, and then at some of the way stations, you may have a family member come and drop more supplies for you. So it's a real wilderness experience. And so, so this, this is kind of what comes to mind when I read. Uh, Jeremiah 16 says, stand at the crossroads and look, ask for the ancient path, ask where the good way, way is, walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. This is literally, yeah, you, you have to do this literally on the Appalachian Trails to find rest. There's a sad story of uh, a hiker, a lady called Geraldine Laguay, uh, they call her Jerry, who decided, you know, one of those, uh, she was 66 years old, one of those, this was on her bucket list, you know. Bucket list, yeah. You know, so after you have taken Femi's advice and you have numbered your days and you have considered your immortality, <laughs> then you can go and get more mortal, you know, by, by going. So anyway, she decides this is what she wants to do and she goes along with her friend. So she goes with a friend, she has all her gear or they have their gear and they have a spot where the, uh, one of the husband is supposed to come and, and supply them somewhere in midway or somewhere down the line and, and off they go. But in the midst of that uh, trail, in the midst of the trail, where they could still get cell phone, cell phone signal, the friend realizes that there's a family emergency and she needs to go. She needs to go. And this lady decides that she will brave it alone. And now, our friends testify that she has no sense of direction. She experiences panic attacks. She's, she's a nurse, so she's very capable in her nursing. Um, and she's very determined. Nurses have, nurses have a certain personality. They will tackle anything. But she has no sense of direction. She experiences panic attacks. Uh, and she's not particularly good with nature. Right? And so, which is why you put this on your bucket list, right? The thing you will conquer, and, and you will be able to say, yes, I've conquered the thing that I couldn't do. Anyway, her friend leaves, and then she continues down the trail. And then... Um, and then she goes out, I think one day she, the, the, the one morning, the last place anybody sees her, she takes a picture with one of the, um, one of, one of the colleagues that you meet in all these way stations. That's the last time anybody said that. And she, I think she left about April 13th for this, uh, to start this trail. And the last picture that was taken of her was in July 20th. So that's how long it takes, April 20-something to like July 20-something. They take a picture of her. And it turns out that, and, and it turns out that she, she goes out of, well, she, not that she goes out of the trail. She goes to find somewhere to use the bathroom and gets turned around somehow. You know, just doesn't, you, you lose your bearings. 
And so she sends a text to her husband and say, honey, I'm, I, I think I'm a bit lost. I may be, I may be maximum, I'm, I think I'm one mile away from the trail. Anyway, it gets worse. And for a couple of days, she keeps sending texts, she keeps sending texts. And then when she realizes that her uh, supplies are dwindling, she starts to write notes. She has a black book, she starts to write notes. And it's, that, it's, it's those notes that they actually used to figure out the last uh, uh, periods of our time. Now, it turns out that none of the texts went because as you would see, right, as you would see in, that last, in, the, in the picture, um, there are no cell phone towers. It's near when you get near a base station, when you're near one of those posts that you'll find something. Anyway, so she, in her last word, she writes uh, a touching note to her husband she, or to someone. She says, when you find my body, please call my husband, George, and my daughter, Carrie. Uh, it will be the greatest kindness for them to know that I am dead and where you found me no matter how many years from now. Anyway, two years later, a supervisor, yes, that's how large the place is. A supervisor for a logging company stumbles on her body in a sleeping bag. And that's kind of how they found it. Two years later, two years later, she was, she was, she was not only was she, so as I say, it's a 2,000 kilometer stretch. She was 200 kilometers from the final place in Maine, but she was only two miles away from the trail. Two miles from the trail. Getting lost can be deadly. Getting lost can be very deadly. The idea of seeking signposts, seeking markers for life is not just a convenience. It's not just something that is helpful to our lives. It's something that in many cases is critical, critical to your spiritual life, to your work, to your raising a child, stay getting or staying married, right? Signposts to, about your life. And to not have that for ourselves, to not have that for ourselves means that you, are put yourself, you put yourself in situations where you, can't, you don't know when to run, you don't know when to walk, you don't know when to plan, you don't know how to think about your life. And you're inviting confusion, lostness, and in many, many cases, spiritual and physical death. So Jeremiah 6, 16, 17 says, this is what the Lord says, stand at the crossroads, look, look, ask for the ancient paths, ask where the good way is, walk in it, and then you will find rest for your souls. Of course, the sad thing is that the, 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 uh, the conclusion uh, uh, Jeremiah has about it says, but you said, we will not walk in it. I will appoint watchmen over you and say, and said, you know, listen to the sound of the trumpet, but you said, we will not listen. Why would they not listen? Again, I said a small context, uh, context is that this is happening during the siege, a siege of Jerusalem. And why is there a siege? Why are nations coming to destroy well, political wars and things like that. But really, the Bible tells us it is God who is moving surrounding nations against uh, his own people who essentially have abandoned his law, have abandoned his word, has, uh, they have abandoned his ways, and it's a form of discipline and punishment to them. God is using the nations of the world to discipline uh, Israel and Judah because of the disobedience of Judah and because of their sinfulness. So Jeremiah spe specifically was a prophet sent to Judah, not the northern kingdom Israel. He says, to whom can I speak and who can I give warning? Who will listen to me? Who will listen to me? A lot of times we, we think of the issue of ignorance being the fact that people are uninformed. Whereas both in this, in this passage and when you hear Jesus or Paul talks about people who having ears, but what? Will not hear. Will not hear. It's not so much as... Having, not having the ability to comprehend what is spoken to us. 
It's not so much as we don't know, we don't understand God's ways. It's that we are so satisfied with our own perspective that we will not be challenged. We will not accept an alternate viewpoint. How many people here have, you know, uh, when an, any issue, there's a particular issue that comes up about Christianity. It may be moral in nature, it may be ethical in nature, it may be just what is best for you, right? And every time it comes up, there's something that just wells up with all the arguments for why you should not live in a certain way that the Bible says. It can be anything. It can be eating meat, uh, salami, they may put, it may be dressing a part, anything at all. Your first instinct is to just rise and say, this shall not come in. According to uh, Gandalf, it says, you shall not pass. Word of God, you shall not pass. That's our first instinct. And we never try to ask ourselves, why am I like that? Why is it? Am I defending my Christian freedom really? You know, am I defending my Christian faith really in a way that I don't want, you know, like, like Paul talked about in Galatians? Oh, it's just personal. I just don't want to live this way. A lot of the ignorance that is in us, you and I, is because we don't want to listen. It's not something that we cannot understand. Is that we have a problem letting God speak to us. The word of the Lord is offensive to them. They find no pleasure in it. But I am full of the wrath of the Lord and I cannot hold it in. Jeremiah says in another place. Now Jeremiah's ministry spanned like three, uh, three major kings and two minor ones. There was Josiah, there was Jehoiakim, there was Zedekiah, the major ones, not in chronological order. And then two minor ones, Jehoahaz and Jehoiachin. And those ones, minor, they, they reigned for like three months. And they were either deposed by the king of, of Egypt and then was deposed by um, the king of Babylon. All but one of those kings I mentioned were wicked. And in some ways, they, they, they ended up punishing Jeremiah personally for speaking the word of God. Instead of listening, they scorned and they punished, uh, they punished uh, the prophets. Uh, um, and, and they punished the prophets. They just were not ready to pay any attention. And then after the, the prophet, so the, the king would punish, but they would be supported by the priest in the land. He would be supported by the scribes. They would really gang up, and the whole nation would say, why are you prophesying this when other prophets are saying this? Why are you the only one saying that hardship is going to come into our land? Why are you the only one saying that we have sinned against the Lord, or the Lord is not going to accept our offerings and our sacrifices and the things in our temple? Why are you the only one? And so it wasn't just the king. The king was emblematic of what was going on in the whole nation. Almost everybody universally rejected the word of the Lord. And yet, when there is a siege, when there's a problem, they say, why are we suffering? What have we done really? Why, why, I, I, really, I, don't, I don't understand why I'm, why I'm going through this. I really don't understand. Could you reflect a little bit on how you are in the relation with the Lord? Nah, just hold on a minute. I, I, I still don't understand why. When we are called to reflect, when they were called to reflect, they didn't. They didn't. And what is, the, what, is, what, is, what is Jeremiah essentially asking them to contemplate, to reflect upon? When he says, not just their own personal histories, but there's something more objective than just your personal histories, than just your experience. He said, what is that thing that you can look at objectively and you can say, ah, my life is like this, my life is messed up, or my life has gaps, has holes, my life has things I need to bring before the Lord. Of course he's talking about the word of God. He's talking about the word of God. The word ancient comes from the Hebrew word olam. 
It means something that is old, something that it says concealed, hidden. But it's not really hidden. It's just that it's been there for such a long time that you actually have to pry it open and try and, and, and find your way inside. It also refers to something that is perpetual. It was given long time ago, but it's relevant till today. It's relevant till today. And so when the children of Israel or Judah, much like us, are asked to reflect on their lives, they're happy to just look at their, their own recent history. Right? The, the good moves I've made, you know, yes, I did some terrible things, but I kind of balanced it out with one or two good things. Uh, Jeremiah says that's not sufficient. You need to look at a, a measure, an objective measure that goes beyond your recent history. He asks them to look at the word of God. It's given to them for a long time ago, but it's timeless. It's also relevant. It's also relevant. It's God's laws. And so the command uh, that Jeremiah gives asks them to put themselves in a position. He says, go and stand. Go and stand. Go and look. Then, then ask. He wants them to have a desire. Without a desire in the people of Judah, there's really nothing he can do as a prophet. And as we know, Jeremiah had one of those ministries that, you know, do we say was successful? Who, thinks, who knows Jeremiah enough to say whether Jeremiah was a successful prophet or a failed prophet? You could both ways, right? He prophesied to a nation that was in deep decline, and he was prophesying what? Judgment. And did judgment come? Yes. Jeremiah might have thought he was a failed prophet because when he prophesies God's judgment, his desire is not to see people destroyed. Much like it isn't God's desire to see his children destroyed or the world destroyed or, or evil people destroyed. His hope and his prayer was that people would repent and turn around and turn to the Lord and the Lord would spare them. And he would not be able to, and he wouldn't be embarrassed to say, uh, or he wouldn't be ashamed that he prophesied destruction and destruction wouldn't come. He would know it's because these people had changed that the Lord spared them. On the other hand, you could say Jeremiah's ministry was successful because nobody repented. And judgment came. What he, exactly what he promised came to pass. The nation was ultimately uh, uh, destroyed and taken into exile. The cost of that success was extremely high. And so for us, we can't afford to be ignorant of God's viewpoint. We can't afford to be ignorant of God's word. We can't afford to, um, uh, to suffer without knowing what it means. You went through stuff last year, the previous, two years ago. You've not pondered what it means for you. You can't afford to be successful without knowing why God has made you successful. You know, it's very easy to just think, I'm smart. I made good moves. You know, chess, I played, Oje, Oje, Oje. You know, when you were experiencing Koje, 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 me, I was experiencing Oje, Oje, Oje. That's why I'm successful. That's not it. He wants to ponder the meaning of our success and what God has planned for us. And that takes me to my second point, a warped viewpoint. Now, this second point may, may require a little bit of more background. I'll see if I can take it very, very quickly. I should have put it on the screen, but I didn't. So I'll, I'll walk through it very, very quickly. So the history of, in, 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 in the history of three or four kings before, before Jeremiah, Israel had gone through some ups and downs. The three, five kings I mentioned, only one of them was good, uh, Josiah. But before them, there were a couple of kings that did something good. There was, uh, I think, was it Josiah before? 
and Jehoshaphat did well. That's when I came with a J, and then Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the most recent king that you would say um, uh, did something fantastic and did something for the Lord. But 745 BC, that's where I'm going to start from. So there's a king in Assyria that ascends to the throne. 735 BC, about 10 years later, Syria and Israel form a coalition to resist Assyria, right? To resist Assyria. And then they attack Judah because Judah will not join them. Judah's king then calls out to Assyria to come and help him fight against the Syria-Israel coalition in spite of, uh, Isaiah warned him. Isaiah warned him. He said, don't do that. Don't reach out. But he goes and he does that. Assyria beats up, you know, it's his war, beats up Syria and Israel and then turns to Judah and then makes them a vassal state. Pay me money for protection money. It's like the mob, right? If the mob protects you, you're going to pay it for as long as possible. Then, after a few years, Israel decides, ah, I don't like this arrangement, right? And so Israel rebels. So Israel, I'm talking of the northern kingdom now, not, not Judah. Israel rebels against Assyria, who then destroys Samaria, the capital, and deports the population. And that's the end of Israel. Israel ceases to exist as a nation. That's the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom, Judah, remains. All right, so Hezekiah ascends the throne in 715 BC in Judah, and there are many religious and political reforms. There are removal of idolatrous shrines, there's a cleansing of the temple, uh, but he also adopts an anti-Assyrian uh, stance. Where, where his predecessor went to look for help from Assyria, he says, no, Assyria, you're not part of us, we're not going to look for you. And then, but instead, he's looking to, he's looking to reunify the, the stragglers, the, the remnants of the northern kingdom Israel that are around. He's trying to sort of get them together, you know, to, as a nation. Somewhere else, uh, a guy called Sennacherib ascends to the throne in Assyria in 705. And, then he, and every, time, every time, you know, anytime power changes hands, everybody kind of evaluates where they are. We don't know what weak kings, we don't know if he's weak or strong, but this is our chance to revolt. Perhaps we can cast off the yoke. So every time, every time a king dies, there are revolts all across the land because people are trying to free themselves. So, Egypt revolts against Assyria. And Hezekiah goes and joins that revolt in allegiance to Egypt against, again, Isaiah, Isaiah tells him, don't, but he goes ahead and he joins. Um, then Sennacherib marches west, puts down the rebellion, and then ravages Judah. Eventually, Hezekiah pleads with Sennacherib, uh, and, you know, and he, the, Sennacherib spares the city in exchange for heavy tributes. In fact, they had to strip gold and silver from the doors of the temple to pay them off. You know, the, comp the country is getting impoverished more and more as we are seeing. But Sennacherib still sneaks through the aqueducts and besieges Jerusalem in spite of the payment. And then Hezekiah finally seeks God's face uh, and his counsel, and the city is miraculously uh, delivered. Delivered, right? And there was, it's a long story, but you know, it's delivered. God creates Wala for him somewhere else, and then he goes away. And so this great deliverance, there's a lot of outpouring of energy in Israel and thankfulness. But life doesn't change much in Judah. The people get complacent about worshiping God, about following his laws. Right? Nothing much changes. And Jeremiah complains about this apathy over and over and over again. Then in the southern kingdom, continuing, Manasseh ascends to the, uh, Judah's throne and then reverses all of Hezekiah's reforms. He embraces Assyria as a sovereign master, but also embraces all their idolatry and their religions. Right? There's corruption, there's apostasy, there's syncretism. Syncretism where you mix all the religions just mesh and mesh them up together, right, and practice them. There's oppression, there's injustice, there's violence, there's bloodshed, and this guy rules for 55 years. And in those 55 years, he completely remakes 
Judah into this terrible, terrible environment. You would not recognize this country um, uh, from the nation that had so much promise many, many years ago. But he dies, and, he, and he's recognized as probably the most evil king in Judah's history. Judah is the southern kingdom. The most evil king in, uh, in Judah's history. His son rises to the throne, and his, his son is promising to be an even worse person like his father. But the Bible says God was merciful. He only reigned for three months. <laughs> sorry, two years. Two years. And then he's assassinated. But in those two years, he, he, collected, he, collected, uh, he collected medal for wickedness. He showed them that he was... You know, so two, but God, the Bible says it was shortened to two years, and He said God was merciful to them. Two years, and Jeremiah was born in those last few years of Manasseh's reign. So he witnessed that religious social evil, but he also saw the coming lights that came from uh, Josiah's ascension to become king. So Josiah uh, replaces Manasseh when he was only eight years old, only eight years old. The Bible records that Josiah began to seek the Lord when he was 16, and he brought about his own religious and social reforms. Jeremiah was called to be uh, a prophet of Yahweh at that time. And then the wonderful thing I'm getting to is the book of the law, the book of the covenant, was found in the temple in the, in the 18th year of Josiah's reign. And in the fifth year of Jeremiah's ministry, and there's just reform across the land. There's just a lot of things uh, are documented to change, both, both the removal of temple, of, of, uh, of shrines, the cleansing of the temple, but also it begins to show in how the nation itself is, is, was, is organized, justice, um, social cohesion, and all those things. But what is the difference between um, the, the kind of reforms we see here and the kind of reforms we saw under Hezekiah's time? Right, what is the big difference? During Hezekiah's time, there was a sense, of, a sense of casting our minds back to history and knowing that our temple was once you know, a place of worship, knowing that our people were once known to be um, you know, good people, great people, that kind of thing. There was a sense of just going back to personal experience and, 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 and feeling and saying, we used to be a kind of people. You know, in the South, with Yoruba people, they say, in the Southwest, you know, they used to deliver milk to our homes. Right and all that stuff. We all in Easter. We, we remember all the good times. The main difference between Ezekiah's reforms and the reforms in Josiah's time, and why Josiah's reform lasted his whole lifetime, was because they had an objective guiding principle. They found the word of God. During Ezekiah's time, they didn't find the law, and they did not organize the nation according to the law. An objective principle. It was just a sense of let's do the best that we can. We've heard, we know from history how you know how wonderful this nation was be. We know that we have an obligation to the Lord, but we don't know the details of that obligation. In this in this in this time, however, when the the scroll of the law is discovered, first of all, Josiah has it read for himself, and then he calls other prophets, other people, you know, and says everybody should go and read and study, and they even speak to a prophet and say. And not, not, only, not only does he read it, right, as a guiding principle for his life, he asks a prophet, he says that we have violated every principle that, that, we, that this book shows us. What are the implications for us? And of course, the warning is strong. The warning comes from the, it was a, a prophetess, actually. The warning is strong from this lady and tells them that, in actual fact, the way we have lived as a nation means that our nation is primed for destruction. And so for Josiah and for his cabinet, 
they fully, they began to fully, truly understand what it means to violate God's law. And then the response that they provide is commensurate to that knowledge. Whereas in Ezekiah, it seemed like they had great desires, and then, and then once in a while, he would just kind of do whatever he wanted. The reforms were not as consistent as in the time of, the time of Josiah. But in the time of, so Josiah moves on, Josiah passes on, and another king comes called Jehoiakim. And in contrast to Josiah's reform, uh, so this time had passed, and Jeremiah, what, what then happens was that uh, God instructs Jeremiah to write down, again, this is probably halfway through Jeremiah's ministry. This probably happened around Jeremiah 25. It's recorded again in Jeremiah 36. God tells Jeremiah, there's no response. These people are not responding whatsoever to, to your preaching, to your message. Go and collect all of your messages, all of your prophecies. Write them all in a scroll. So he takes a scribe, Baruch. He writes all the prophecies that he's, that he's ever written. And then he tells Baruch, I can't go to the temple. Take this collection, go to the temple, have it read in front of the people. Perhaps it's because these guys have not, um, maybe they're not conversant with all the things I've been saying. So you, they take the scroll to the temple, they read it from one of the balconies, and somebody says, oh, we have to tell the king. So some people heard, they thought, yeah, this makes sense. We're in real trouble. And somebody says, we have to take this to the king. And so they take the scroll, uh, they take it to the king, and the king says, well, they keep, keep, keep the scroll in a room. They go tell the king, and the king says, bring it out, let me, let me see it. And see, this is, I'll read what Jeachim's son, son of Josiah, did when they brought the scroll. It says, after they put the scroll in the room of Elishama, the secretary, they went to the king in the courtyard and reported everything to him. The king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and Jehudi brought it from the room of Elishama, the secretary, and read it to the king and all the officials standing beside him. It was, the ninth month of the, uh, it was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in a winter apartment with a fire burning in the fire pot in front of him. Whenever Jehudi had read three or four columns of the scroll, the king cut them off with a scribe's knife and threw them into the fire pot. He did this until the entire scroll was burned in the fire. The king and all his attendants who heard all these words showed no fear, nor did they tear their clothes. Even though Elnathan, the liar, and Gamariah urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. Instead, the king commanded Jeremiah, the son of uh, a son of the king, Sarah, son of Israel, and Shelemiah, son of Abdil, to arrest Baruch the scribe and Jeremiah the prophet. But the Lord had hidden them. At this point, the nation, after Josiah had passed on, after his own reforms had moved on, the new king who reigns had become so hardened that when they're reading the scroll to him, he's cutting them up and he's using it to burn, essentially to warm up his palace. This is not ignorance. This has moved from being ignorant of God's law to being hardened, to having a warped viewpoint of God. This has moved to a point where, on the one hand, they're calling out for the prophets and asking, why are we suffering? Why is the nation attacking us? Why are we not prospering? Why is evil besieging our, our land? And yet, they can comfortably take a prophet and take the word of the Lord and cut it up and burn them up. Comfortably. It's a warped viewpoint on life. So for us, if we had a moment to reflect on our past, or not just reflect on our experience, but also reflect on our experiences through the prism of God's word, 
what would, if, what would we find? What would, we, what would happen to us? How would we view our lives? Would we be extremely pleased with how our experiences have gone to in last year or last couple of years? Or would we be humble and repentant? Would we be puffed up or would we be crushed? Would we fall into the category, as Femi said, self-lovers or self-haters? In order not to fall into those, uh, into those uh, pitfalls, we need to have something more objective uh, to help us. God's word makes for a better perspective on the critical things of our lives. First of all, in God's word, we find God's thoughts about how things should be. Um, we talked, I think we've spoken about how uh, as, as believers and as followers of Jesus, that we, we try as much as possible to stay in agreement with God's definition of sin and God's definition of what? Righteousness. That we don't, we don't when God says something is sin, we don't say, ah, no, I think I have a better definition of what sin is, right? We don't do that. At the same time, when God says, this is what I, 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 I hold to be righteous, we don't disagree with God and form and, and make up our own definitions of what righteousness is all about. But the thing that God's word does for us, ultimately, so we see God's thoughts, we see his actions, but when we are, and we are, we're talking about how we interact with God's word, in, in hopefully, you know, uh, you know, in our lives, ultimately, the thing that matters when we interact with God's word is that we see God's character, is that we see God for who he is, that God's own character, God's own person, God's own, uh, yes, God's own character is the thing that begins to shape our thoughts of how we see both God and see our own lives. Does that make sense? When God calls us to study scripture, when God calls us to review his word, it's ultimately so that we may meet a person, we may see a person and see how that person not only uh, acts, thinks, but also sees the world. And I'll come back to some of those attributes uh, in a short while. Jeremiah asks, the people of Judah and ourselves, it says, ask where the good way is. There is an objective good way, right? And there's a, there's a bad way. There's an objective bad way. And we have to be able to distinguish between, between those things. It is not, in, in the coming year, in this year, um, let us not be the kind of people, like, like I said, who for many years you've been asking the same questions of who knows whether it is good to do this or who knows whether it is good to do that. This is the year you should find out. Does that make sense? Some topic, random topic has been disturbing you. Some random topic has been occurring over and over again. Don't say, you know, some preachers say this, some preachers say that. Who knows which preacher is right? This will be the year that you find out what, what preacher is right or what God is saying about what these preachers are saying. We're invited to evaluate and to judge ourselves, to judge between what is good, between what is evil, and to not make any excuses or use uh, false equivalents. You know, when we, don't want, when we don't want to deal with an issue, we can say, eh, you know, other people are doing this, or, or, or that issue is the same as this. No. If you, are, if you are being convicted of something by God's spirit, by God's word, face it, deal with it, tackle it, wrestle with it, and come to a conclusion. It says... Ask for the path. Ask where the good way is. And then second thing he says, walk in it. Walk in it. 
Jeremiah wants the people of Judah, like us, to have a bias towards action, a bias towards applying God's word to our life, a bias towards obeying the Lord. Obeying the Lord. One of the things that has marked many, many lives of many, many otherwise wonderful people is a commitment to knowing doctrine, to knowing theology, to knowing the word of God. Not so much living the word of God. Not so much applying the word of God. Not so much doing and obeying the Lord. We need a bias towards action. We need a bias towards obeying the ways of God. When our lives come in line with the way God expects us to live, right, there will be a lot of walking hand in hand with the Lord. And for many of us, it means that, it means that you know, it will be a struggle. A life that wants to be conformed to the image of Christ, a life that wants to stay, to live in obedience to Christ, will struggle, won't it? Unless you're already perfectly aligned in your heart, unless you're already perfectly, you know, uh, resource, will you struggle a little, a little bit? Don't take the struggle as a sign that you're meant to be doing something else. Don't take the struggle as a sign that you don't have any strength. In a little while, we'll talk about how we have that strength. Don't take the, the struggle as a sign that you don't have what it takes or that God is not with you. Or that you, that you don't have the strength. The struggle is real, like they say, but the struggle is also part of the Christian way of life. Praise God. And then the assurance we have is that if we ask where the good way is, if we walk with God, we'll find rest for our souls. We'll find peace with God. We'll find peace with men. Um, we'll gain perspective about God's character. Now, a couple of things I, you know, that I kind of pen down. I'll see if we can run through it quick. Do I need to be quick? Almost. All right, so, no, I don't need to be quick. That's the answer. All right, so a couple of things that we can talk about God's character and let us see how that should shape our lives. So I'm, I'm going to throw things out there and I'll say a couple of things. So God is infinite. Who knows, who knows what, what it means for God to be infinite? He's spirit. He's eternal. Yes? My mumbling theologians. He's what? He's immortal, right? God is eternal. God is, God is immortal. God is eternal. Uh, God is infinite. He's a spirit. How does, what, how does that change our opinion of life? How does that shape anything about our, li our lives? Well, first, because he has no beginning, he has no end, he will always be there for us. If his spirit, related to being a spirit, is also the fact that he is omnipresent, Right? Do we believe those things? Or, you know, or it's only in theology class we, that we kind of pay attention to it. The things you learn in theology class are meant to be used in your daily life. So God is spirit and God is omnipresent, right? He's omnipresent, right? That means he's with you every single time, including the time you were crying and saying, God, why have you forsaken me? I almost swore there. All right. It means God is with you, right? So God, another, another character would be that, uh, actually, God is self-existent and God is immutable. Self-existent, he needs nobody to feed him. He has everything that he has, that he needs himself. What, is, what does that mean for you and I? Yeah? It means, it means, first of all, that there's nothing we can give him that he actually needs. When God relates with us, there's no, there's no food, there's no, no offering. No, he's self-existent. 
That means we can't buy his love, we can't buy his attention, we can't buy his righteousness, right? But it also means that because he's self-existent, he can provide for all of our needs. He can create everything that is needed for us. What does it mean to say that God is righteous? That God is just? What does it mean for you? What does that mean to you? He's righteous. That means anything he does will be good, will be right, will not, cannot, will not be classified as evil. So he's trustworthy. He's the kind of God I would want to serve. He wouldn't do things that are evil objectively to me. What does it mean to say that God is just, that God is a just God? Right? It means he's fair. And that when I experience injustice, the just God of the universe will make it right at some point in time. So there's implications for the future, but there's also comfort for the present. What does it mean to say that God is love? And there are many things surrounding love. God is, they say, is benevolent. God is good. God is merciful. God is gracious. When you think of those things, how does it help you to think about, the, about who this God is? That he loves me, that he cares for me, that he will never leave me nor forsake me, that he will be with me, that he has a posture, a posture, to always do good to me. He's benevolent to me. You can think of other things. Uh, God is truth. Uh, God is holy. God is faithful. And that's just one small part of scripture, one small part of contemplation, one small part we can reflect on when it comes to the word of God. There's so many other things we can learn about uh, the God who reveals himself in scripture, who wants us to take on his perspective on life. We can begin to reshape our perspective on that basis alone. Praise God. So eventually when we do gain that perspective, when we do consider God's actions in the past, in our history, and we do consider, hopefully we can see God's character at work, we can see clearly, clearer than we used to, how he's been working in our lives, how, he's, how God is good and good to us all the time then we can consider that his ways are actually good. His ways are actually pleasant. His ways are actually agreeable. And these are all the terms that I use for the word um, see the good way, when, it, when Jeremiah talks about the good way. That God's word is pleasant. That God's word is agreeable. And it's something we can delight in. There are many people that, for us, our engagement with the word of God is a chore. It's, you know, we, we think of it in terms of discipline. Wake up early in the morning, have our devotion, and we have to do it, kind of do it every day, try and be consistent. So there's the, we think of it, the duty of struggling to be consistent in fellowship with God's word. That's how, when we think about it, how we think about God's word. But we never think of God's word as, or not that we never, we mostly, many times, we don't think of God's word as something that is delightful, something that we enjoy, something that is agreeable to me. But as we submit our hearts and our minds as we gain God's perspective, as we inter, inter, interact with that same uh, God's word and God's laws, God's word becomes agreeable to us. It becomes something that is pleasant to us. We will understand that his commands are for our well-being. And ultimately, we will continue to seek him so that we may find rest in our souls. This is, uh, I know we're talking about reflecting on the past, but it's also an admonition for the future that we don't seek short-term fixes for gaining perspective. We don't seek, seek short-term fixes for, um, for our sanctification, for growing in the fruit of the Spirit. 
We don't need to be led by false teachers. And you don't have to lie to yourself or sell yourself some false hope. For many of us, when we evaluate ourselves and we fall short in any manner, uh, we start to try and um, pad our record. Hey, I'm not that bad. It's not so, you know, I did well in this area too. You don't need to feel crushed and you don't need to take, look for shortcuts in order to become a better uh, uh, in order to be a better version of yourself, a self that is conformed more and more to the image of Christ. So that we don't end up like the people who Jeremiah was talking to and he says, he says, walk in it, and their response is, I will not walk on it. In the same Jeremiah, uh, in the concluding parts of Jeremiah chapter 6 that we read, verse 20, God, speaking through Jeremiah, says, and again, referring to the people who refuse to walk the way he asked them to, but they are still making religious offerings to the Lord. And so the Lord says, What do I care about incense from Sheba or sweet calamus from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable. Your sacrifices do not please me. Rather than we frantically offering incense and offering promises and resolution. God asks us, first of all, to contemplate his revealed will. Before you start thinking about, oh, in this year I'm going to do better. In this year I'm going to do this. He says, first of all, go to the word of God and reflect on it. More than just one dry interaction with God's word. right? He's saying that there is an offering that is acceptable. There is an incense that pleases me. And he doesn't come from religious offering. He comes ultimately from something, ultimately from someone. It came from the kind of sacrifice, the kind of offering, the kind of incense that pleased the Lord and that makes it possible for all of us to please him. It came from one who came from somewhere farther than Sheba. In fact, it came from heaven himself. We won't do well as we consider the new year and our transitions. We won't do well to just try and resolve to do better. We will not do well if we're just resolved to, to do more. We have to experience, each and every one of us, the transforming power of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. Like usual, we can go back and we can review our history, but we can only review that history through the lens of God's holy word. But also, we can only survive that experience and not be crushed by our failures or puffed up by our successes if we stand on what Jesus has done for us, his ultimate sacrifice for us. All of our resolutions have to be on, has to be on the standpoint of the sacrifice Jesus made for us on the cross. For Israel, that cycle continued. There's a legacy of repentance and then they will relapse back into evil. They will listen for one decade and the next decade, they would ignore the watchmen. But we can have a different experience. We can have a power that sustains us, a sacrifice that holds up for us forever. The book of Hebrews says, But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of blood and goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. 
Bible assures us that the blood of bulls and goats uh, can only temporarily cover up sins. Can only cover up sins so that people are outwardly clean. But how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. And that's saying that what the people in Jeremiah's day did not have, what the people in Jeremiah's day could not do, we have the capacity to do. We have it on the basis of Jesus Christ's sacrifice for us. Christ, or God the Father, is first of all satisfied with that sacrifice. He's first of all called us and pulled us into a family and he has poured out his spirit into each and every one of us. And because we have the transforming power of Christ's sacrifice, we can begin to look for the future and begin to resolve. We can begin to look at the gaps in our lives. We can look, begin to look at our flaws. We can look at, you know, our failures and we won't be crushed by it and we'll learn from it. We can look at our successes, we can look at things we did well, not so well, what things we're trying to improve on, and you won't be puffed up by them. All of us, every single one of us, can look at our lives in the coming year and say, I offer it up to you, Lord, and I'm going to use it better. I'm going to do better. Let us bow our heads. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the privilege of being called your sons and your daughters. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son who came from, who left the comforts of heaven to come and dwell with us. We thank you because of him, the siege on our hearts have been lifted. The crushing power of death, the crushing power of sin, that we've tasted all of our lives through your son Jesus Christ all that has been lifted away and Lord we desire to know you more we desire to seek you more we don't want to recreate our own ways Lord we seek the ancient paths we seek to know all the things that you have done for us in eternity past and you continue to do for us now we want to know your son Jesus Christ we want to know the fellowship of his suffering we want to be conformed to his image we want to live lives that please you day after day we want to offer up the best sacrifices sacrifices that are acceptable to you we want to offer the sacrifice of our praise. We want to offer the sacrifices of our bodies. We want to offer you our time and our substance. Help us to know, Lord, that you deserve all of this and more. Help us, Lord, to withhold no part of our lives. Help us to bring it all before the cross and to surrender it to you in your son Jesus and so we trust you Lord for obedience we trust you Lord for motivation we trust you for inspiration we trust you Lord for a healthy perspective help us Lord to see 
you, beauty of your holiness and your wonderful character each and every day, Lord. We give you praise, we give you honor, we give you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.